Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. We believe this is our show, but I think today this isn't our show. This is going to be John Barber's show. And with John Barber uh, are the following podcasters from around the world. I have Roy next to John, and he is right now in Poland from Ireland. And I have Mary from United States. And uh, I have Steve from Asia and Jane from Canada. And with us, the one and only John Barbour. And to the young people, maybe they need a little introduction of John Barbour. And I'll just say a little bit. And now, because it could take forever and ever and ever to talk about John, but definitely wish him happy birthday in just last two months, he just celebrated his double eight and he is just like 18 years old with his energy and enthusiasm and commitment to tell the truth. So John is the godfather of reality TV and he has written several books and his latest books, I believe is, um, this is John's newest book is The Wittiest Man in America, okay? and. Yeah, you but, forgot the end of it. The wittiest man in America is a Canadian. <laughs> and he's had the, the famous book, Your Mother is Not a Virgin. And of course, he has this, The American Media and the Second Assassination of the President John F. Kennedy. So John is a fantastic storyteller. So I'm just giving it now to John. Go ahead, John. Oh, Grace. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you, because we did this once before and I absolutely loved it. First, I loved being live. Everything I did that was successful was live. I originated the first news show on ABC in Los Angeles. We were live. Real People, which was the first reality show on television, was live. Uh, and it's always been a delight to to be live and grace. I must add this, you know, while we have somebody in Asia and we got somebody in Poland, you're the only one with an accent. Are you in America? Yes. <laughs> I'm from the Philippines living in America. So uh, that's why I have an accent. <laughs> that, that's, that is absolutely wonderful. So now I want to ask a couple of questions first to some of these fabulous hosts. Now, I forget some of the names because I don't see that the screen is very small and I don't see their names, but I believe it was Roy that was living in Poland. Correct. Yep. And you were born and raised and lived in Ireland. Yeah. I'm from the south of Ireland, Cork City, and I'm 14 years in Poland. Why did you choose to move from Ireland to Poland? I thought the weather was, it was raining too much. You know, and I decided. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is funny. Well, what is the weather like in Poland now? Because I read that England and Germany was having floods and England was having a heat wave. What's it like in Poland now? Yeah, there was a storm, a bad storm a few days ago. Um, I have a swing chair, a metal swing chair, and I just flipped over. There was massive trees just knocked down all through the city, but beautiful again today. The sun is shining. So the storm is gone. You know, we have to start smiling again. Well, that's wonderful because I must tell you, after two weeks, Roy, 
we had in Las Vegas for two weeks, every day was over 115 degrees. And if you walked outside, if you were, even if you had thick shoes on, Roy, it sounded, it felt like you were walking on the roof of hell. And if you were outside, you were like a human waffle being baked from below and above. And right now it's just about 101 degrees. So that is cooling down. Okay. And now, and I'm going to tell you a cute little story. Hopefully a cute little story because Grace said I was a storyteller. But I, I wear that the last time I was on the show, I wore this. And I am not superstitious in the least, but I am so, slightly superstitious about Superman, which I will get to in a minute. Uh, the only other superstition I have is an ancient 5,000 year old Hebrew uh, proverb that says, no matter how well you're doing, never say publicly you're doing well because the gods will hear it and take it away from you. And I will give you some examples of that as we go into the storytelling a little later. So now let's get to the fella who was born in, uh, uh, in New York and moved to Asia. How long ago did that happen? And why did you move to Asia? Hi, John. I that happened in 19 November 1994. Uh, so God, you must have been a kid. I was 30 years old, 30 years old. And so. what prompted you to move to Asia? Even though, have you ever heard of a billionaire by the name of Rogers? He's a Canadian, and 15 years ago, he announced on the internet that he was moving to Asia with his two teenage girls because he said China is going to be the country of the future. He lives there now, and both his uh, girls speak uh, Mandarin and Chinese. Why oh, did you, Why did you do it, and did you bother with the language at all? <laughs> uh, it was my company opened up an office in. Um, in Singapore. So they first had me go to Japan and then I went to Singapore and I helped open up the office. So that was why, but I didn't really go immediately because I was 30 and I wanted to uh, settle down. I was in New York city. I was having a great time and I had my friends. And so I decided to go for one year after a lot of cajoling. And I never, I went for one year in 1994 and I'm still here. So Okay, now your company obviously is not what you're doing now. How did you and Roy happen to get involved in doing a show live on the internet? We all took, all of us in this group took a core, a broadcasting course uh, with London Real, and we were all classmates, an online course that started probably March 2019. Uh huh. And, and, um, that course brought us all together. It was people, the course was basically about creating your own podcast. And, 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 and uh, are you glad you uh, did it? I mean, I'm glad you did it. Has absolutely. It I mean, yeah. yeah, because there's not many people who you can talk to in this world who are, you know, of the knowledge and, and sort of awake and stuff. So we, it, we didn't know this was going to happen, but it, 
it brought us all together and we were all like-minded and there was probably a hundred people in the course, but I think a core group stuck together. Oh, um, that's fantastic. Now I'm going to go, is it Mary on your, your, your right? Is that you, Mary? Yes, how are you doing, John? And where are you? I am in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm originally from Rochester, New York, and came down here and enjoying the better weather. Well, I understand that Florida is probably one of the most active states now, one of the most wide open states, and I have a number of people who are close friends who indeed want to move to Florida. Now we go to the young lady in Toronto, where I was born. Uh, I uh, I dropped out of um, school when I was 15 years of age in Toronto. I ran away to the United States illegally at 17 to become a professional gambler. I have always, always had an affection for Toronto because as a kid, I had two loves, and one was, of course, to be a hockey player. And when I was 10 years old, I was every bit as good as Wayne Gretzky. But I was sadly talked out of it by a nice-looking woman exactly like the lady living in Toronto now. Her name was Miss English. Can you imagine that I can remember that after all these years? I'm 10 years of age. And Miss English, who was very, very very, very attractive lady who never wore panties. I will not get to that story just yet. But in any event, one day she was asking every kid in class what he or she wanted to be when they grew up. And of course, a guy would, if a kid would stand up and say, I want to be a doctor and get applause. And somebody else would stand up and say, I want to be a policeman or a fireman and get applause. And, um, a lady would stand up and say, a young girl would stand up and say, I want to be a nurse at that time. You know, a young lady would never say, I would want to be a doctor. And she would get applause. Now, in order to understand me as a kid, I never studied anything. I never studied, even though I was an honor student. Yes, Your Honor, and no, Your Honor. I was. I was at the top of my class. The reason I got to the top of my class is I wanted to make sure that Miss Britton never had panties and only the smartest people got to sit in the front row. But anyway, when it got to me, she said, Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, when I was that age and a little younger, any, if I could raise 50 cents, which I often stole from my drunken mother's purse, or I stole from a friend, or I stole from a store, or I worked as a paper boy for a couple of days till they decided I was never gonna get up at four o'clock in the morning in January ever again. But when I could steal 50 cents, I'd get on a streetcar and I'd go to Maple Leaf Gardens on Carlton Street, if you remember the old Maple Leaf Gardens, and for 50 cents, I would get standing room only. I did that every year for four years from the time I was eight years of age and did it by myself. So anyway, when Miss Britton says, what do you want to be, Johnny, when you grow up? I stood up proudly and said, a hockey player. And she booed me. And she said, nobody makes a living as a hockey player. And guess what? Everyone else in the class booed me. So while they were booing me and she said, sit down, Johnny, I began to recite the name of every single Toronto Maple Leaf hockey player, 
Derek Broda, Ted Kennedy, Wally Stanowski, and their salaries. And the louder she yelled at me to sit down, the louder I sprouted off their salaries. But of course, I was crushed. And that's when I gave up any dream of ever being a hockey player. And everything that has happened to me since then, I must say, I am, I would, I, I'm not really an atheist because there is no proof that a God does not exist, but there is no proof that a God exists. So I would say that I'm an agnostic, but I must say that everything magical that has happened to me from the time I crossed the border, deported twice in the first show business story, I, God, I got so many stories to tell you. First time I was deported when I was 17 years of age. The next time I was deported, I was uh, 28 years of age. <laughs> and every deported, deported back to Canada, John? Yeah, they deported me back to, to Toronto. And <laughs> I got my green card in 1962. And it's funny, there's a fellow named Joseph Planter. Do you know who Joseph Planter is in Canada? No. He, well, he is by far your most articulate and intelligent book critic. And he does a podcast out of Vancouver. And he discovered uh, my book here, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. It's 752 pages. And this is how smart he is. He called me and he said, John, that is by far the best book not only about anybody who's ever been in show business, but the best book I've ever read about anybody, period. But you made a mistake. I said, what was the mistake? He said, first of all, it's 752 pages, and I got carpal tunnel syndrome holding it and trying to read it. You should have ended the book when halfway through the book, you said you got your green card. And he said, I'll never forget the sentence that closed that chapter. And you said you were on your way to a new life in a new country with a new young president. That was 1962. And the thought that hit my mind was, oh, my God, that guy's going to get there when they murdered John Kennedy. That should have that should have been your book. And in, in, in any event. I wandered. I wandered off somewhere, but um, in in Toronto, la it was just last year in April. Angel, I have a a publicist. Her name is Deborah Knight. Handles a lot of cli major clients in Canada. She is my publicist, and she had arranged for me last April to come into Toronto. You have. Uh, it, in the United States, we have uh, major booksellers, but you have one major bookseller in Canada. Is it called Indigo? Yeah, Indigo. Yeah, uh, well, she had set up signings at Eaton's in Toronto. And when I was a kid, I used to haunt Eaton's because underneath Eaton's, you could walk under the tunnel from Eaton's to uh, Simpson's, there was a little ice cream stand that sold the greatest waffles in the world. And two or three times a week, I'd go get, go there and get that. I have nothing but fond mem memories about that. But she had me plan for major television, 
for major newspaper interviews that could have made my book a bestseller in Canada, which is all I hoped for, because I figured if it became a bestseller in Canada, I could bring it down to the United States. And one week, I had already booked my hotel, great hotel on Lake Ontario, got my flight, and then your prime minister decided to shut the border. And I thought, oh my God, they're picking on me. And <laughs> so I, ne I, never, I never got to go there. And I hope to come back again because my sister, whom I had not seen in 50 years, now lives in uh, Victoria. And uh, Len Osanic, who was one of the three greatest broadcasters about, he has a, a, a black op radio out of Vancouver talking about the assassinations in the United States, the assassinations of Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy. And me wait, and since we're gonna be talking show business, you may be interested in talking a little bit, because I'm gonna ask you a little bit about the fact that uh, Oliver Stone has now made a new documentary that premiered this week at the Comp Film Festival See if you've heard anything about it, if you had any interest in it. So now I'm going to get to this, this here. Being slightly superstitious about this, and, and I can tell you why in a minute. But last week, it saved me $400 wearing this shirt. Even during the pandemic here, when everything was shut down, Every afternoon, I would go to Boulder Creek Golf Course and play nine holes. I had to have the physical activity. I missed it. As a matter of fact, myself and uh, uh, Bo Swenson, the star of Walking Tall, and Alan Thicke, we started the celebrity hockey team in Los Angeles, which is still going strong. And I, if I don't have physical activity every day and some mental activity, I really fall to pieces. So I go out, I play golf. So I was driving home four o'clock in the afternoon last Wednesday. Nobody on the highway, but behind me was a black unmarked car. And it stayed kind of close behind me. And I felt it was a little too close. So I sped up. And the more I sped up, the more it sped up. So then I started racing. And it started racing, and I got a little scared. Then all of a sudden, there out of this black car come flashing red and blue lights. It's a cop car. So I pull over quickly, and I stop, unfasten my seat belt, pull out my driver's license and my insurance, roll down the window. And this 30-year-old nice-looking uh, sheriff sticks his head in, and he says, you know, you're going 70 miles an hour in a 50-mile zone. So I said, well, you made me do it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, look at back there. That is an unmarked vehicle. That doesn't look like a cop car to me. There's no lights on the top. There are no lights on the side. I thought it was road rage, or I thought it was some guy chasing me to pick me up. So he looks at my driver's license, and he says, 1933? You're 88? And I said, yes. So he looked at me with his puzzle look like, geez, no gay guy's going to want to pick up somebody who's 88 years of age. So I said to him, hold it a minute, officer. Do you think Superman 
should be going less than 70 miles an hour. Well, he started to chuckle. He didn't want to laugh, but he started to laugh. He said, well, listen, if you're flying, you can go as fast as you want. But if you're driving, you got to be Clark Kent and drive 50 miles an hour. Just consider, John, that this is a warning and have a nice day. And I said, officer, you just made it a very nice day. Save me $400 and put some markings on that spook mobile you have. So there... There you go. That was, and you know what? I'll tell you something else. When I travel and I get to the airport and somebody sees this, usually a security guard will take me through security right away. And not a day passes where someone doesn't smile and say, I love that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not really proud that I wear this. I wear this because this brief superstition that I have. But any event, question I have to all of you to you what kind of reaction do you ha have you had uh, or that you have read about or do you have any curiosity about the new documentary about the murder of John Kennedy that Oliver Stone has just put out I'm very curious <laughs> uh, and what have you read about it uh, you know what I didn't even know about it <laughs> But now I really want to know about it. Okay. I heard about it. I haven't seen yeah. it. I'd like to hear what you, because I remember you were dissatisfied with his portrayal of um, of Jim Garrison in the movie. No, not, not, no, I wasn't dissatisfied at all. First of all, the movie is a brilliantly made film. I am a fan of Oliver Stone as a filmmaker. I don't know him personally, personally but I have some doubts about him from stories uh, that came from the Garrison family. In 1992, when he was making JFK, he wanted to make a documentary about Jim Garrison. And Jim Garrison told his daughter Elizabeth, Jim Garrison was on his deathbed at the time. And I was the only one who tried to get Jim Garrison on television in 1970. He had written a book called Heritage of Stone. I'm not interested in the assassination, but as a kid, um, uh, do you remember uh, in Canada, the voice of Canada that had this voice like Orson Welles? I think his name, name was Lorne. I can't remember. He be, played Ben Cartwright in Bonanza. Lorne Green. Lauren Green. Okay, yeah. as a kid, I would sit. Oh, you're Canadian and you're going to learn about Canada from an expatriate. Anyway, uh, <laughs> as a kid, I used to listen to Lorne Green every week telling stories. And then I would also listen to him tell the stories of Gordon Sinclair. Gordon Sinclair was a famous Canadian short story writer who only wrote about real people. That's how I became fascinated. So when I wasn't in the Main Street Jail in Toronto. You know where Main Street is on the uh, uh, west end of Toronto, where Adam Beck School is, Malvern Collegiate. Well, that's where I went. But anyway. Young Street? No, no. Young Street was the middle of town. Okay. Near, near Scarborough. I'm and a I, country girl, so I don't know. Oh, well, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Near Scarborough was Adam Beck School where uh, uh, I dropped out. Tell you a funny story about that too. And then Malvert Collegiate, I went to one one year 
And uh, my father had left in 1939 to join the Canadian Army because our family was truly dysfunctional long before it was popular. And the fights that he had at home were nothing, he thought, compared to any fights that he met, might have with Germans. So he joined the Canadian Army, went overseas, and he never came back. So, and my mother began to uh, introduce me to uncles. They came into the house like grapes. They came in bunches, you know, and they came mostly to bed with her or booze with her or to beat her. So I can't tell you the number of times I had to jump out the window and run to the Main Street police station and have the cops come and break it up. And, uh, and when I got, and I spent a lot of time being arrested and being at the Main Street station myself, but right across the street was a library. So I spent half my time in the police station, half my time in the library, and devoured every book I could. And to this day, everything that I have ever read, I don't have a photographic memory, is somehow there. And I remember Guy de Maupassant, short stories, the Frenchman, and Somerset Maugham, and one of the greatest, one of the greatest autobiographies I ever read until I wrote mine, called The Summing Up. I mean, just... I lived in books. I lived in the movie theater, so I became a storyteller. Now, what happened uh, in 1970 after I read Heritage of Stone, I learned things about the assassination we'd never heard of. I mean, I heard that uh, Jim Garrison had to sue Time Life to get the Zapruder film, which shows the actual killing, to show it to a jury. He had to sue Time Life. And Time Life said no. And so then Garrison had to take it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court had to give him the film, the show, to a jury. Uh, I also read that uh, the only forensic pathologist at the autopsy said there was no autopsy. His name was Zinc. And he was called as a witness to testify. Also, I learned, you know, you probably have all heard, the media has told you, that Jim Garrison lost the case. He did not lose the case. He lost the conspiracy case against Clay Shaw. And he had an absolute slam dunk conviction because what he was looking for was a perjury conviction. Now the jury, a lot of the jurors felt it was a conspiracy, but the CIA was unknown to most Americans at the time. So it was a mystery to them. And so they they absolved Shaw of being involved in the conspiracy, but they convicted him in eight minutes of perjury. Eighty-three people knew that he had been Lee, with Lee Harvey Oswald as his handler and David Ferry, and the government stepped in to stop that case. It would have been a slam-dunk conviction. And Garrison had proof that Clay Shaw led a very deviant, sadomasochistic, homosexual lifestyle. They had testimony from a guy who lived with him for a year, but was kicked out after a year because he had a transgender operation to become a woman. And when he was now a woman, no longer desired by Clay Shaw. And they have four $20 male hookers talking about the fact and testifying to the fact and swearing to the fact that they got $20 to have sex with David Ferry and Clay Shaw 
and Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald was bisexual, something that you absolutely never hear about. So when I read this stuff, I thought, oh, my God, I never heard this. So I called New Orleans to the sheriff's office, and the bass baritone answered this phone, and it's Jim Garrison. And I said, uh, th th this is John Barber in Los Angeles, and I have the most successful morning show in America, and we're alive, and I've just finished reading Heritage of Stone. And Garrison inter interrupted me with a chuckle, and he said, oh, John, you must be the second one. I only sold two copies. That's the kind of sense of humor that this brilliant man had. I fell in love with him at that instant. It took me a half an hour to convince him to come on my show because he said, you'll never get away with it. Have you ever seen me on television? And I said, well, I saw you on late night on NBC. He said, John, that was the result of the lawsuit because they sent a guy down here named Walter Sheridan with direct orders to uh, bribe my key witness, Perry Raymond Russo, get him out of my jurisdiction and get him a job at $50,000 a year in Los Angeles. And Perry called me and said, Mr. Garrison, I got to meet with him at a motel. What should I do? And Mr. Garrison said, Perry, would you wear a wire? So Russo wore a wire and they have it. NBC's leading producer, literally bribing a guy in the most important murder trial in American history. NBC should have lost their license. Walter Sheridan should have been in prison, but they had a fairness doctrine at the time in the United States. And so Garrison sued and got equal time late night. So he told me about that. Now, as a result of that, Ronald Reagan and the leaders and the owners of this country, who are not the people, they are probably two dozen families that own this country, look at this and say, holy shit, we can't have this kind of truth on television. And they kill the fairness doctrine. Because if you look behind me, you'll see a picture of Ronald Reagan shaking hands with me. Because Reagan was running for governor uh, second term, and he picked my show to come on rather than the Today Show. And I'll get to that story in a minute. But when I booked Reagan on the show, I then had to have a Democrat. Then I had to have a socialist. And then I had to have a Nazi. And I'll tell you, the fairness doctrine was so strong in America at that time that if you were a writer or a producer and some critic savaged your play or your film or whatever, you could demand equal time. I am the I was the first person in the United States to review movies on television in the news. The only critic in the United States to have a review ruled on by the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, the movie happened to be Soylent Green. Any of you remember the film? Oh yeah. Tell your audience yeah. about the film a little bit. It's a futuristic movie set in, I think, 2002, where it's a dystopian America. People are living in sort of sectors, and they're basically there's the rich over there, and the the you know the the uh, slaves over here, and they're being fed. They don't know they're being fed humans. Hey, there you go. That's it. They were turned into crackers. 
so we could have three squares a day. Well, anyway, I decimated the film. Now, it's easy to get laughs, as Don Rickles proved, if you're attacking somebody. But the truth is, nobody sets out deliberately to make a bad film. There are hundreds of people involved in the making of the film. They all hope it's going to be terrific. Once in a while, accidentally, it comes out fantastic. I have always felt that movies were exactly like people. That 99 out of 100 were shit. And one was fertilizer that made going through the other 99 worthwhile. That's how I feel about people. And that's how I feel about films. As a matter of fact, I told an audience one night, got one of the biggest laughs I ever got. I said, I'm at that stage in my life where I don't like people anymore. I only have affection for old people. And you know why? Because I don't have long to live. So anyway, that's how, how I feel. So anyway, I felt guilty about attacking this film. And I said, you know, I should say something good about the film because they don't intend it to be bad. The sets are beautiful. And then I felt guilty about manufacturing this fake compliment. So I said, but they would have been more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of the actors. Well, it got the biggest laugh I ever got inside a newsroom. And of course, the producer called NBC and demanded equal time. And Bob Howard, the general manager, said no. And Fox said, well, listen, if you don't get rid of John Barber, you are not getting more ads from Fox. And Bob Howard said, you know, if I got rid of John, my wife would get rid of me. So I guess we'll have to do without your money. Bless him. He saved my job two or three times. Those stories are in the book. So then he took it to the courts in, in Los Angeles. They turned him down, took it to the courts in California. They turned him down. And five years later, the Supreme Court ruled against his getting equal time. And do you know what they said? They said, John Barber's reviews are of absolutely no public importance. So that's how it disappeared. Anyway, when I uh, tried to book Garrison on the show and succeeded in, in doing it, the very next day I was fired. But I never thought it had anything to do with the fact that they were trying to shut Garrison up. Not at all. This was show business, you know, and these kind of things happen. But I was thrilled when JFK the film came out. And I had done an interview now in 1970. Uh, I lost that show. I ended up becoming the critic at another local show uh, station. And then uh, I had been called by Los Angeles Magazine because of the reviews I did. See, I was strongly opposed to the war. I was strongly in favor of civil rights, but I couldn't say anything on television because I'd have to give people equal time. So what I decided to do to let an audience know there's somebody with a half a brain sitting at this desk every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday against the wishes of the general manager, John McMahon. I did film reviews live that became so successful. LA Magazine called me and hired me, and I was there for 10 years. Tom Brokaw saw me at a small station, brought me to NBC. I was there for five years and three years in a row. I got to Emmys, the most awarded critic in America. And almost nobody knows that I was even a television critic because of the other things I've done. But back to 
uh, Oliver Stone's documentary. I loved Oliver for his work. And I am able to separate my appreciation of a person's talent from their personality and character as a human being. Uh, there's a wonderful story in there about Mort Saul. Do any of you know who Mort Saul is or was? Any of you? Oh, that's really sad. Mort Saul was John Kennedy's favorite comedian. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was the most brilliant monologist since Will Rogers. It's funny, you don't remember War Mort Saul, but you'll remember Will Rogers or even Mark Twain. Well, intellectually, Mort Saul was his equal. And I, I did a, my first al a comedy album was called It's Tough, Tough to Be White. My mentor when I started, you know, I got, I got inspired to get into television only because of Jack Parr. And probably none of you know, but you should Google. A hundred times better than Johnny Carson or all of them combined. The best late night talk show host in America had intellectuals on the show that nobody would have on. Gore Bedell, Malcolm Muggeridge, Alexander King, great radical intellectuals, uh, even William Buckley, funded by the Central Intelligence Agency. Not only did he have them on, he had comics on, Jonathan Winters, and just started, I mean, he was totally brilliant. But I became a fan because I never knew that people talked to one another. I would watch Jack Parr and think, oh my God, look at this guy makes a living talking to people. But he opened the show with a monologue. And I can remember his jokes from this day. And that was back in the 50s, one of his, one I remember he said he never votes because it only encourages him. What a brilliant thought. And how wonderful America might have been if in 2016, every single American boycotted the election. I mean, what is the choice that you have? You got Hillary Clinton and you got Donald Trump. It's the Hindenburg versus the Titanic. I mean, expression. There is nothing in the Constitution about a two-party system. Anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. Too much. I'll get back to Oliver Stone. He, he made a movie called El Salvador. It is one of America's best political films, the best film that James Wood ever made. And in order to do it, well, uh, uh, um, Oliver had to mortgage his house. So he put his money where his beliefs were. And I admired that. And then, of course, he did a bunch of other great films. And then when he did JFK, he made it without being fully aware of how deep state the Central Intelligence Agency is. Now, you hear a lot of people talking about the deep state in America. There is no deep state in America. America is the deep state. Every single aspect of American life from medicine to the media to Hollywood has been totally infiltrated and taken over by the Central Intelligence Agency. And we've got documentation to prove that. In the Frank Church hearings in the 70s, which are in the second film, The American Media, all verify it. At that time, there were 400 CIA agents writing for every newspaper and television and radio station. 
in the United States. So in, in any event, he is, uh, and because of the movie JFK, we had the Records Assassinations Act passed, and two years ago, Congress mandated that all the files should be released in October. And Donald Trump said he was going to release them. Aha, fooled you again, didn't I, folks? They have never been released and never will be released because if those files are released, there are hundreds of people alive today who will be on trial and out of work and in prison. America would be done with. So now he comes out with this new documentary. Who do you think is narrating this really important three and a half hour documentary from the guy who had the guts and the talent to make the movie JFK? Thoughts? Guesses? Do did any of you ever see any of his wonderful pieces on Showtime? He did a short series of specials on Showtime called Hidden History. And one of the best of the documentaries that he did at that time was about America's leading socialist vice president, Henry Wallace, who gave Americans at the height of the Great Depression, social security, an eight-hour workday, workman's compensation, and eventually Medicare, all from socialists. So anybody in this country complaining about socialism who's been collecting social security should refund their checks because there has not been one advance made in this country for the American people by any conservative politician that equals the impact and the help of Social Security, an eight-hour workday, unions, and workmen's compensation. And on Facebook a year ago, I put up a $100 bill, which I increased to $1,000. If any, I have 5,000 friends. A lot of them are conservatives. A lot of them voted for Trump. A lot of them are very smart, even though they did vote for Trump. And I challenge them, collect this $1,000. Show me one piece of legislation introduced by any conservative that equals what the socialist Henry Wallace did in the mid-30s. And they haven't come up with it. But I don't like to talk politics because politics is over with in America. America's toast. America is done. But liking and loving America and Americans has nothing to do with tolerating a totally corrupt government and a totally corrupt system. They are entirely different. Anyway, I would... John, what I, do you think will happen to America if you see it that way? Well, like, it's, impl it's imploding. It's imploding. And look, at it is so obvious. What is the most important... You know, I wanted to tell you some great show business stories. And I got a hundred of them. I'll try to tell one or two quick ones before the 90 minutes is up. But this is much more important. To Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, the founding fathers, and John Kennedy, what is the most important thing to help make and keep America a democracy? It should be the simplest thing for you to say or no. Freedom of speech. 
That's it. It's the First Amendment. We do not have that in the United States of America. And the reason we don't have it is because the worst president in our history, Bill Clinton, denied us that, along with Ronald Reagan. When John, at the opening of both documentaries that I made, which I by far the definitive films on the murder of John Kennedy, solved by Jim Garrison, and the birth and purpose of fake news, which still exists today. Donald Trump railed against fake news because he needed it. And I'm going to tell you why he needed it. Don't let me forget that, because he got into an argument with Leslie Stahl on live television on 60 Minutes and blurted out why he needed it. So this will give you insight into the chicanery of Donald Trump, the hustler. Okay. But when every, both documentaries open with John Kennedy saying, those who are those governments that are afraid of a free flow of information are afraid of their people. When John Kennedy was president of the United States in 1963, there were 1,500 different owners of media in America. And along comes Bill Clinton. First of all, should have been in prison and arrested for murdering 87 women and children at Waco. But forget that. Forget that. He destroyed America. George Bush only destroyed Iraq with the lies of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Bill Clinton signs NAFTA. NAFTA sends all America's jobs overseas. But there's a purpose. And the purpose is... The reason the Vietnam War ended was not because of politicians. It was because people like you and I voted with our feet and took to the streets and were arrested. We were democracy on the march in Chicago. That's what ended it because American middle-class boys, not just blacks and browns, but whites, were coming back in body bags because of a draft. And the owners of this country said, oh, my God, I don't want my boy going over there to get shot. we got to find a different way. And this is a different way. And it's been reported by dozens of social scientists, but you never hear it on the news. First, you get rid of the jobs, which was NAFTA. Then the next thing he does, he gets rid of Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall is something else you probably never heard of. And that was introduced by Henry Wallace and FDR during the Depression. Glass-Steagall was a law that would forbid banks and brokers in the United States to gamble with their money. And he repealed that, and guess what? It led to the 2008 recession. I lost a $900,000 home, and 900,000 people lost their homes because of Billy Clinton. And the other thing is they dumbed down the people. I know three kids graduating from UNLV or honor students who can't get a job. And so they're going to join the military. So that's what you have. You have bright people can't get a job in this country and they have to go to the military. And then what does he do? He passes the Communications Act in the middle 1960s, uh, 1990s, 
It put 96% of all the media into the hands of six major corporations. Now that's a monopoly. And here's something else, sadly, none of you will know because you weren't even born at the time. Do you remember an outfit called AT&T? Yes or no? Yeah, of course. No, okay. I'm American, so yeah. yeah. Okay, what was AT&T? Atlantic Telecommunications, something. I don't know. It's a, it was a phone company. Yes, it was the largest phone company in the world, deemed in the 1960s by the Supreme Court to be a monopoly. Of course, AT&T spent millions fighting the ruling, and yet the Supreme Court won out. And everybody was afraid that ATT would said, you know, phone business will go bankrupt and it's over with. But guess what? It led to 12 great other telephone companies. The American media in the hands of Disney and ABC and all these people, these are all monopolies. And with the pen, Donald Trump could have reversed what he called fake news. But in this argument with Leslie Stahl, it was about eight months ago, and I think it was just before the election, he got into this terrible argument on the air in 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. And Leslie Stahl stood up. They thought the they were off the air, but they weren't off camera. And Leslie Stahl said, I remember when you told me that you were always going to attack CBS no matter what. And Donald Trump said, yes. Because if I say something and you say I'm lying, I'm going to attack you as fake news. He needed the fake news as a bully boy, the way Hitler needed Jews in the 30s and the way we needed commies in the 50s. That's what got him elected. You could fix it immediately. You could fix America's problems immediately. You know, right now, we have a resurgence of what we call the COVID, okay? I don't understand it all because I'm not medical. And I understand even less by watching the mainstream news and then watching idiots on the internet trying to explain it to me. Now, I am not taking the COVID vaccine, but unlike Dr. Tenpenny, who goes on and say, if you take this vaccine, it turns you into a magnet and keys will stick to you. And then you've got people up there trying to demonstrate and it, and it doesn't work. You've got all kinds of people railing about the evils of the vaccine. Listen, a vaccine, very simply, is a modest amount of the disease injected in your body to build up your immune system. That's all it is. But to me, now my son, who's one of three geniuses I've known, he was the... Uh, 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 co-executive producer and one of the head writers on Criminal Minds and CSI and is now doing a 10-part series for Netflix. My son is 51 and is, I've known three geniuses in my life. Jim Garrison, Buckminster Fuller, the scientist, and my son. And my son has taken the shots and he's urging me to take the shots and his mother. And I say, no. And I'll tell you why I'm not taking it. When I was a kid and there was smallpox and later when polio, okay, you took the vaccine. You know why? It was one disease and it was one vaccine. 
But now you got sort of two or three variants of the disease and you got six vaccines. Which one is the right one? So I'm not going to play Russian roulette with a vaccine. I'm not going to take it, period. Now, as for my wife, my wife is hypersensitive to chemicals. She can't get into a swimming pool with a lot of chlorine without turning green. She cannot wear an alloy. I have to buy her sapphires and gold, this pure and everything. It's pure. Very expensive lady. Because if she wears an alloy, she turns green. So that's the only reason. But I'm telling you something. I don't know if the vaccines are going to hurt you or not. I mean, look at, we got some idiot on Fox in this country. What's his name? Tucker Carlson. He's going around screaming that 29 people have died since they took the vaccine. What they might not tell you is that four of those people died of old age, that three of them died of heart attacks, two of them died because they hit, got hit by cars, and two of them died because they live in Chicago and got shot. But what you never hear is that 200 Americans die every year from eating goddamn peanuts, for crying out loud. Nobody's attacking planters. I mean, America is a mess. It is a monumental political and cultural mess. You know, when I came here, I could name you literally a hundred Americans of all stripes, all persuasions that I admired because of their intellect and their verbosity and their outspokenness and their talents. There is not one American alive today with the exception of Ralph Nader, whom I admire. Not one. You name me one that you admire and tell me that I am wrong, please. I don't hear anybody talking to me. Cricket. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I was waiting for the dog to start barking in Toronto. So maybe what I'll, maybe what I'll tell you uh, a show business story because it sort of reflects on real life. You've heard of the P Peter Principle where folks rise to the level of their incompetence. That is what ha has happened in America in every aspect of our life. Do you know there's only one area in America where excellence is demanded? What is that area? Might if I ask a question? What do you think that area is? Well, maybe there are two areas. The first is athletes. They have to be excellent. Otherwise, they can't play basketball or hockey or go to the Olympics. Maybe the other areas is in brain surgeons, is that they have to be excellent. But other than that, there's no demand for excellence anywhere in American lives, not even as performers. I mean, Rod Stewart, to me, sounds like Carol Channing. I mean, he still sells a million records, but it's Carol Channing I'm listening to. It's not, not you can't, you know, you can't name an artist. I can't name an artist. A male singer that sounds like a man. When I was a young man, we had Billy Eckstein and we had Dick Haynes. We had Vaughn Monroe. We had Frank Sinatra. I was Frank Sinatra's private writer for four and a half years. 
We had scores and scores who could sing and sound like men. Not one today. We have a number of, and you, there are no more love songs because there's no more love in America. The only place you can find a halfway decent song or story is in country music. You can't find it any place else. There are no shows to watch in America. A couple of times, the shows that I watched, they turned out to be British shows. It was Victoria. It was crossing the, uh, across the Atlantic, crossing the Atlantic, just a wonderful short documentary about FDR and the princess in Denmark, oh, just terrific. And then the thing called Doc Martin. I can't think of an American show that I, that I, that I watched. Anyway, I, I asked you before about who might be narrating uh, um, Oliver Stone's film. It's being, now listen, I have not seen it, but I will make this speculation and I think I'm right. I think it will be lousy because the narrator he's chosen is Whoopi Goldberg. Who in hell is Whoopi Goldberg? She is an ordinary talk show hostess on ABC. She is an excellent actress who doesn't act much anymore. When was the last time you heard her railing against the Warren Commission? When was the last time you ever heard her say anything about the murder of Martin Luther King. And here's something that Americans are never taught and she will never even talk about. Do you know that Coretta King, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King, a half a dozen years ago, won a major lawsuit against the federal government and the CIA and the FBI for their complicity in the murder of her husband. Her lawyer was a guy named Pepper and the major witness was a 70-year-old uh, owner of the uh, restaurant behind the Lorraine Motel who said he was paid $50,000 by the Central Intelligence Agency to use it as a hangout for the shooters. No, you know what? Not even the black press covered it. The only person there was Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory, who died sadly a couple of years ago, helped me build my career because he was the guy, the most famous comic in America at the time, loved my album, It's Tough to Be White. And I was a hard time, having a hard time getting it released. And he called my wife, Serena, and said, honey, tell your husband I'm going to do the liner notes for his album. And it was released. So if you go to my site, you can Google It's Tough to Be White. And then... My second album, based on my phone reviews, is called I Met a Man I Didn't Like. Those line of notes are written by Burt Reynolds, Joan Rivers, and Neil Simon. And all three of them I eviscerated as a critic. And if you go to my site and you Google Burt Reynolds' best interview, you will see the best interview Burt Reynolds ever did on television was on a local show. And last year when a Canadian was making a documentary about the life of Burt Reynolds with his adopted son, he had access to Sinatra's interviews, Mike Douglas's interviews, all of them. They chose material from mine. And when I he came on my show, because I bombed him in a film called White Lightning and when he was the highest paid actor in America. And he called me on the phone 
and said, you're doing a show on Saturday night, right? And I said, yes. He said, I'm showing up. And he hung up. He booked himself to come on my show. As for Neil Simon, Neil Simon, if he got royalties for all of the works that he has done, and Shakespeare got royalties, Neil Simon would be richer than Shakespeare. He did not need a studio to do the Sunshine Boys. Did any of you see the Sunshine Boys with Walter Matthau and George Burns? Mm. Okay. It was probably Neil Simon's worst film, worst casting. When he wrote the play, he wrote it for two actors in New York, Sam Levine and Jack Albertson, two Jewish actors. And it's about two Jewish comics. What could be more perfect in New York? It was so brilliantly written, even if you were an atheist or you were a Catholic or a born again, you could identify with these two brilliant performers. But when he came to Hollywood, he tried to Presbyterianize it by hiring movie stars. Walter Matthau, who was wonderful. George Burns, I'm gonna tell you the George Burns story in a minute, who was wonderful. And they were awful in the movie, and the only reason you liked them because the guy playing your nephew liked them. So when I reviewed it, I said, all I'm saying to you, and I said on the air that what Neil Simon should write next is a letter firing himself as his own casting director because he doesn't need Fox, he doesn't need MGM or Universal. If he believes in his work, he could finance his own play and turn it into a film. I get back to my office and the phone is ringing and I pick it up to say hello. And all I hear is laughter. And he's, he says, this is Neil. He didn't even have to say Neil Solomon. And I said, oh God. He says, that's right. And he said, you know, John, tonight, they're giving me the Heart of Israel Award at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And I'm stuck for an MC. Would you come and MC my show? And we were friends ever since. And then when I made the second album, he called to do the liner notes. And six months later, he called me when it didn't become a bestseller. He said, John, that is, that is the least, least successful writing I've ever done in my life. So now I'm going to tell you a George Burns story. Oh, George Burns. Yeah. John, before you go to the George Burns, my question is, if the, the family of Martin Luther King was able to successfully win that case, how come the family of President John F. Kennedy could not have the same? Oh, what an absolutely wonderful question. Because frankly, they did not have the balls. It's that, it's that, it's sadly that story. Before they murdered Bobby uh, Kennedy, Jim Garrison, one of Jim Garrison's lead investigators, was Mort Saul. I mean, that's how dedicated Mort Saul was to John Kennedy in finding some truth in America. And Jim Garrison said to Mort, please tell Bobby, your friend, that he has to go public with his suspicions, otherwise, they're going to murder him. And they did murder him. And the proof, there is a documentary called The Second Gun. Proves beyond a shadow of doubt. But my one of my closest friends was um, 
Dr. Thomas Taguchi performed the autopsy on Bobby Kennedy. And they got rid of him because Sirhan was no closer than three feet in front of Bobby Kennedy. And John Kennedy was shot twice, once through the armpit and up, and once there. And the bullet was, was a, an inch and a half from the back of his skull. And that bullet was fired by a security guard named Thane Cesar. And Bobby Kennedy and, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. had a chance four years ago to go to the Philippines where Cesar had retired living successfully, a guy who hated the Kennedys and said so openly and voted for George Wallace. So he was easy to pay off to shoot Bobby Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy wanted an interview with him and Cesar wanted $25,000. And Bobby said, no, are you kidding? I offered $25,000 to two people to be in my documentary. One was Dan Rather. No, I offered Dan $10,000. Dan Rather was a guy on CBS who said, oh, the third shot hits him in the back of the head and Kennedy's thrown violently forward. When the Zapruder film shows exactly the opposite. And I told his agent it's $10,000 to answer just one question. Where did he see the Zapruder film and who was with him at the time? That's all I wanted. And they turned me down. And four years ago, when I released the American media and the second assassination of President John Kennedy, George Knapp, who was the most popular newsman in Vegas and is a monster hit on the internet, was going to interview Bobby Kennedy Jr. before we introduced the first garrison tapes, the first film about Jim Garrison. And he wanted $25,000. I gave him or was about to give him my last $25,000 because that would bring the truth out and make the documentary, The Monster Hit, it deserved to be. And I offered Bobby Kennedy half of the revenue from that. He backed out the day before. 1,200 people were waiting for him. He backed out. So I made a, an additional documentary called The Last Word in the Assassination. The Ken now listen, if you're a Kennedy, they framed Bobby Kennedy, they, they murdered Kopechny, and they set it up as something that Bob, uh, Teddy Kennedy did. He did not do that. They just did not want another Kennedy running for the presidency. And Sean Lawton used to be Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s speaker's agent. The speaker's agency was Kepler in Arlington, Virginia. Sean has since left, opened up his own shop in Colorado. He represented Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Dick Gregory. When I was negotiating with him to get Bobby Kennedy, he told me that privately, Bobby and his sister or sister-in-law, one of the females, were hired by a major American Corporation to give a private speech on the murder of John Kennedy. They were paid over $100,000 each for that speech. There were no cameras. There were no recordings, nothing. There was no evidence that it ever even happened, but it was a packed house when they spoke. So he spoke one time about it. And um, one time at the, uh, about six years ago, at the Dallas Opera House, he was interviewed by a CBS newsman, and Bobby Jr. admitted that his father never believed the Warren report.
And that's all we wanted him to do for $25,000. And he, back, he backed out. But if you're a Kennedy, you would be very nervous because you can see what happens. A guy named Penn Joan from Midlothian, Texas, wrote six books called Forgive My Grief. And he outlined literally the hundreds of people murdered who were witnesses. In our film, there are 87 documented that were discovered at the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I only point out 10 to, that are the most important, most important, and probably the most important is Dorothy Kilgallen. She got the only interview with Jack Ruby. And afterwards, this former crime reporter, Dorothy Kilgallen, even though she was on a on a quiz show, the most popular quiz show in America, What's My Line? She says, I'm going to break this case wide open. She had this folder that she gave to her assistant. She carried it around. And a couple of weeks later, she's murdered, found poisoned, also murdered her assistant. My God, what more proof do you need? No word from not one of her panelists or friends about what it is that she said. And guess who she was trying to get her, her folder to? She was trying to get her folder to Jim Garrison in New Orleans in the mid 60s. So America's done. It's, you know, it's just, I have absolutely no hope for it. But you know what? Look at it. In Russia, in China, in Mexico, in the worst countries in the world, Thailand, pick a rotten country, there are billionaires. Smart people can survive in a garbage dump. America is a political and cultural garbage dump. No, I'm doing okay. And I know a lot, a lot of my friends, I play golf with executives, and people are making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. So they're doing fine. They have no criticism of America. But it's not the America that I became a citizen of in 1977, I was handed my citizenship papers after being deported twice by United States Senator John Tunney and Charo sang the national anthem at a dinner for me, okay? How lucky could I be? But look at the dump. You'll see cockroaches surviving and rats surviving and snakes surviving. That's what we are. We are survivors. And that's John, just because yes. uh, there's one question I'd love to ask you because you're obviously a fantastic storyteller. And another one that I like to listen to was Muhammad Ali. And I know you've interviewed him, and I'd love to know your, how that went. Oh, I, I'm so glad that you asked that question because everybody in America, maybe it's just human nature, becomes a hero after the fact. In 1970, when I put, booked Muhammad Ali on the show, uh, and then that has a tandem story. Have you ever heard of Cesar Chavez? Have any of you heard of Cesar Chavez? No. I don't hear anything. No, I don't. No, I haven't heard. I've well, heard and read about him, but I don't know much about him. Okay, tell you quickly. Cesar Chavez... His picture is one of the only pictures that Joe Biden has in his office. Cesar Chavez was the greatest leader of fighting for unions in the United States. And his greatest ally was Bobby Kennedy Jr., who made him absolutely and totally famous. 
I'm going to tell you a wonderful story about Caesar, at the, uh, who was a farm worker. That's what he was, a farm worker, as I will uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, I booked Muhammad Ali in 1970. At that time, 95% of every American alive wanted Muhammad Ali dead or in prison because he said as a Muslim minister, he was not going to kill yellow people in Asia when his problem was white folks in America. He was booed everywhere. Nobody liked um, Muhammad Ali. Only two other people ever gave him airtime. Howard Cosell, a sportscaster, and Jack Parr, and myself. And I booked him for an hour. And when I booked him, because he had a wonderful way of writing these little couplets and verses about, you know, floating like a butterfly, et cetera, et cetera. When I introduced him, I introduced him in verse. And there's a picture of him up here on the wall, me talking to Muhammad Ali. He was so taken by that that he asked if he could borrow it because he was booked the next day to be on Flip Wilson's show because he was appearing on my show. He was going to appear on a variety show with the number one comedy show now in America, a black Flip Wilson who had this great character named Geraldine. So I said he was welcome to anything he wanted. But I asked him a question that startled me and surprised me. I asked him that when he was, we found out why he wanted to become a Muslim and I had a lot of jokes about X, you know, because that's what they become as they become X. And I said that Dr. Martin Luther King would be known by the Muslims as Kleenex, you know. And uh, another talkative black would be known as Windex. He loved the jokes and wanted to take them. And then I said to him, but when you were a kid and you were Cassius Clay, who were your idols? Now, a guy that bright, I thought it would be Douglas, a great articulate black, or Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson is the greatest single artist, activist, political activist ever created in the United States of America and poisoned and murdered by the FBI. He was there long before there was an NAACP, so I expected him to say Paul Robeson. He didn't say Paul Robeson. He didn't say, and there was another guy I liked. His name was Reverend Ike. He was out, he dressed in white, and he was out of Detroit. Very funny minister who said, always dressed in white and drove a Cadillac. He said, because God didn't make junk. That was, and so I thought these were the people he would say. Guess who we would guess who we said was his idol? Guess. I can't. His mom. No. His mom. <laughs> his mom came in third. Your third. <laughs> guess who came in first? Who came in first was Gorgeous George. And you know what? You guys don't even know who Gorgeous George was. I am blessed. You know, I am so lucky that I'm twice the age of you are. Because I have lived America through America's golden age, which has turned into fool's gold. But I remembered when it was real gold. 
Gorgeous George was the most famous wrestler in America. And he used to dress like Liberace. He wore these fancy gowns and a wig and he'd go up and he would insult the audience and they would boo him. And, 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 and Mohammed just took delight in, in reliving the fact as a kid, he loved to see this guy booing, being booed by the audience. And then Ali would smile and say, but every seat in the house was full. And I knew that when I grew up, I was going to be a big mouth and fill every seat. He said that on the air. And as a result of that show, I won my first Emmy. And sadly, nobody kept the tape. So that was that story. And now the story about Cesar Chavez. I had a general manager who absolutely hated me hated the fact that I did reviews live on the air because a lot of advertisers and film studios canceled the rads because of John Barber's reviews. He hated the fact that we did open phones, which the first time happened in LA, became the most popular segment. The more popular I became, the more he hated me. Now I had Jane Fonda on the show at the height of the Vietnam War when everybody hated her and wanted Hanoi Jane dead. We might have time for that story, but we might not have for it. It's a great story in the, in the book because I, as I said before, I could not take a stance on Vietnam or uh, civil rights. Now, what, what I did, the reason that the news show started on ABC, when there was a fairness doctrine, any group in the United States could challenge a station's license. And in Los Angeles, 20,000 Chicanos were challenging the license of KABC, which was so, showing cartoons and movies in the morning, saying they had no representation anywhere. They had it little in government, and they had it at the, a couple of other stations. Uh, had, one had Mario Machado, but nobody on ABC. And so they were challenging the license and they were getting successful. So what happened is that as a sop to the FCC, they canceled the cartoons, held open auditions to do a 90 minute live news show. And I was, I was doing a stand up at a place called the ice house where Steve Martin had started and Mario Machado, who was the most popular Chicano in LA, handsome kid, said to me, hey, John, you should go audition for this show. Uh, it's a news show. And I said, well, I don't do news. I just do jokes. And I said, and they're going to give it to you. I mean, you're everybody's ethnic. I mean, you speak Chinese and you got, you know, three ethnicities in you, your mother and your father. Me, I'm just waspy. He said, no, but he said, I can't ad lib. You can. I can read, he said. And I got a better voice than you. I can read. But you're you do political stuff. You so he gave me the name Mort Lockman, who was a producer. I auditioned. And strangely enough, I got the show. One of the first things I did. Now, listen, 1970s, 30, what's that? 57 some odd years ago. I was 37 years of age. Yeah, 51 years ago when I was 37. I remember these names. 
Rosalia Munoz and Gonzalo Javier. They don't mean anything to you, but what they were, two 20-year-olds, Hispanics, who were organizing the Chicano Moratorium March of 20,000 people on Los Angeles City Hall, demanding a change in local government, representation there, and representation at the, uh, at the police department. And along with them was a guy named Ruben Salazar, the most brilliant, articulate columnist in the country in Los Angeles Magazine, with a column in the LA Times, most famous Hispanic in America. They were all part of it. I had these two guys on my show, and they were warning about what could happen if there's a riot with 20,000 people. He talked about agent provocateurs, and they do exist. For example, in Chicago, it was CIA agents who tore down the flag in Lafayette Park that started the riot. Because if you have turmoil, you have a house divided, and if you have a house divided, you can pass the Patriot Act. That's how America works divide and destroy. And that's what they've been doing since the founding of this country. So in any event, the march goes on and a riot starts. And a cop starts shooting off a tear gas, tear gas canisters. One hits Ruben Salazar in the head and kills him immediately. And he falls to the ground and he's dead. Now, if that had been blacks, there'd have been no LA left. It had just burned the thing down. All of a sudden, it got quiet. There was the body of their spokesman lying on the sidewalk, and the riot was over. So what happens? Of course, the police blame a bunch of Chicanos, and one of them was a guy named Corky Gonzalez. So he's arrested for starting the riots. I get a call from Cesar Chavez, the second most popular man in the United States. Now, let me tell you. When I interviewed Ali and Jane Fonda and all of these superstars, not once would John McMahon, the general manager of the station, take a clip and put it on the news as the news director wanted to help promote my show. That's how much he disliked me. I had to go hire a private publicist named Joe Sigmund, who was also Carol O'Connor's publicist, to let people know that I had a television show even though it was the most popular morning show in America. Anyway, uh, I get a phone call from Cesar Chavez, and he wants to come on my show. And we're staggered. Uh, more, uh, Brad Lockman and I are staggered. Oh, my God, the second most famous man in the world. Now, when we had Ali on our show, so here's my set, and I'm talking to the camera, Behind the cameras were 25 or 30 news people from New York, from Russia, from Poland, from Hong Kong, from all over, because I'm talking to the most, most famous people in the world, and they want to interview these people after they leave my show. So we, the studio was always packed with news people when I had the major stars. Now we book Cesar Chavez. Cesar only showed up with one other person. I mean, when Reagan came in, he came in with 10 suits, for God's sake. Cesar came in wearing Levi's and a plaid shirt like he'd just gotten off the farm. And he was about my size, only he was a little stockier. I'm only 5'8", and he was a little stockier. 
So we sat down to do the interview. You could not get in the studio. There were so many people from the New York Times, Life Magazine, the LA Times, the Washington Post. You just could not get into the studio. And they're all waiting to do an interview with Cesar Chavez when I'm finished. We have him for an hour. And it's just fabulous. And he's gracious. And we have these open calls, brilliant phone calls, answers them all well. Now it's almost over with. And I know I'm going to lose them. I had the most shameful thought as a performer or as a human being. Other than a couple of times I thought I would have liked to have murdered my father if I ever found him. Most shameful thought I ever had. I had it this time. And during the break, I turned to Cesar Chavez and I said, Mr. Chavez, could I ask you a question? And he never turned to look at me. He didn't even answer. I said, you know, I've had a lot of famous people on my show, as you know, Muhammad Ali. He was being called, Cesar was being called to be a character witness for Corky Gonzalez. That's why he was in town. That's why he called us. And I said, you know, we had Jane Fonnell. And I said, the general manager so hates me. He will never use a clip to promote my show. Cesar still didn't look at me. And I stopped because now I'm becoming real embarrassed. And I said, you know, I hate to say this. And I feel like an absolute total Hollywood egomaniac. But if you would do me a great favor, it would be this. Every one of those people out there staring at you can't wait to get rid of me, get to you. They're going to take you out in the hall, uh, hallway, put you up against a brick wall, ask you questions, not as good as questions I asked or the callers asked. And that's how you'll appear on the news. But if you want to do me a favor, he's still not looking. And I stop again. And then I finally say, when they come up to you, would you please tell them that you can't go outside because you have a bad back from picking grapes? I wanted to cry. I was so embarrassed at what I said. Now, the commercial's over. Light's over. We have to say goodbye. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. Billboard the next guest. Okay, the cameras go off. Somebody literally takes my chair and drags me off the stage. So they And they swarm around Cesar Chavez. And Cesar doesn't move from his chair. And he raises his hand just like that, like the Pope. And they all get quiet, totally quiet. And he says very softly, ladies and gentlemen, I would love to come out and talk to each and every one of you individually and give you my time and take my time. But I'm sorry I can't because I have a bad back from picking grapes. Because of that, John McMahon had to show a clip on the news and it doubled our ratings. So Cesar Chavez did for me, more for me in 30 seconds than ABC did it in the year that I was there. So, lovely story, John. Thank you. Now, I'm going to tell you uh, because I'm sure we've run over the hour and a half. And I'm really sorry for that because I've got, we're going to have to book another show where we, because I must tell you, Grace, you lied when you told <laughs> your audience that we were going to tell the greatest show business stories ever told because I've got show business stories about all of them. 
Sinatra and Carson and Hope and Kirk, the, the biggest in the business that have never been told in a fabulous stories. But I'm going to tell you one closing story because it is my son's favorite show business stories. He was 13 years of age when he heard when he heard this story. Lucille Ball uh, said publicly uh, that aside from the guys who wrote her show, her favorite writer was John Barber. She said she and her husband, who was a, a comic, used to fight every month over who would get to read my reviews first, which was wonderful. And the truth is that the publisher of LA Magazine uh, said that I, I joined them in 1970. And by 1980, when I quit, the reason I quit is I've gotten real people on the air accidentally. And I quit because I've gotten real people on the air. And I got calls from Neil Simon and, uh, and uh, Burt Reynolds, both of them saying, you cannot quit, John. Because who's going to tell the emperors in Hollywood that they're wearing no clothing? And I said to both of them, I said, Neil and, and Bert, I'm telling you, I've just run out of ways to say it's a piece of shit, which got me one of the biggest laughs in my life, which is true. So I never went to movies again and never wrote a, 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 another review. In any event... What I did at one time, when I lost real people, I lost it over trying to tell the story of Jim Garrison. And I was sabotaged again by NBC and the executive producer of Real People, a guy by the name of George Slaughter. That story's in the book. I don't want to get into how he sabotaged it. But that's how I lost real people. And the greatest show in the history of America went into the tank. It had more impact than it did 60 Minutes. In three years, it had more impact than 60 Minutes in 30 years. A story I did got the Vietnam Memorial Wall built in Washington, D.C. A story I did got the Navajo Code Talkers, a presidential citation. And a story I did got John Walsh, the Missing Children's Act passed. That's the power of this show and our ability as a storyteller. So anyway, when that happened, I get a call from uh, Edie Adams. Edie Adams was Ernie Kovacs' widow. Have any of you heard of Edie Co Ernie Kovacs? Any? Any of you? Oh, no. my God. Okay. Have any of you heard of Charlie Chaplin? Yes. Okay. So Ernie Kovacs was the Charlie Chaplin of television. Let me put it that way. Okay. He was the only one who used the medium brilliantly as a comic and became the most successful comic in America and tra died tragically in his mid-40s, driving a faulty car called the Corvair, which had the engine in the back. And it was Ernie Kovacs' work that was the foundation and the theft by George, uh, George Slaughter, who was the co-creator of Laugh-In. Do you remember Laugh-In? Laugh in from the 80s, one of one, three of America's greatest comedy shows. But the foundation was the material that Slaughter stole from uh, the work of Ernie Kovacs. So I get a call from the widow. And she asked me if I would do her husband's story. And I said, well, I've never done a documentary. She said, well, you tell stories every week for three years and real people. They're eight minutes long. So do one that's 90 minutes long. 
She said every producer in town wanted the rights to Ernie's life. And she said, no, she wanted creative control and she didn't trust them to do it right. So I met with her and I said, listen, I'll do it on one condition. You stay out of my way till I finish the film. When I finish the film, if you don't like it, you have creative control. You can have me change it or whatever you want, but that's my work. And you don't get access to my work. You just will know that I did it. And so she agreed. So I made a documentary called Ernie Kovacs Television's Original Genius. Got unbelievable ratings on Showtime, so high that ABC optioned it to make it a film. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that during the 50s and 60s, when he was successful, they paid 90% income tax. And so he was always broke because he was a very heavy gambler. He died owing hundreds of thousands in taxes. And because of my documentary in that film, Edie was able to pay off all of her husband's debts. And so one night, a producer got the idea because Edie Adams, who was a great singer, sang a song at the end of the show when there's a montage of Bernie's work. And I, I dubbed in her voice singing Send in the Clowns. Perfect. And she's wonderful. And the producer saw it and said, you know what? There are a lot of people like Edie Adams, like Frankie Lane and a bunch of other popular singers who are no longer popular and are retired. And maybe they'd like to come up one night and do a show. So he booked the Pantages Theater in Hollywood, which used to host the, uh, the Oscars for one night of these famous old stars. It sold out in an hour. So Edie was going to go. I was gonna go with my wife and my son. Edie didn't, Edie didn't have a date. So George Burns called and said, hey, Angel, I'm gonna be your date to listen to you sing tonight. So there we were. And then Henry Bollinger, who was her publicist. So the six of us went to the show. Now, after the show, there was a restaurant in Sunset and Doheny called Scandia. They had the greatest late-night dinners in Hollywood, small filet mignon and a beef steak tomato. That's all. But, God, it was delicious. And my wife and I and our, my son used to go there once a week after I'd review something, just to have the late-night steak and beef tomato. So that's where we go. Now we walk in. We're walking in with George Burns at 10.30 at night. The place closes at 11 o'clock, but we're walking at 10.30. Now, I thought George would want to go to the downstairs wine room and eat privately, but George loved the spotlight. So he said, let's sit at the middle table. So we sit at the middle, most well-lit table. Now we're surrounded by people who are just gawking at George Burns all night long, six of us sitting around. And George starts talking. And he talks from 10.30, 11 o'clock is closing time. He's still talking. So the major D comes over and says, we're closing now, but you can stay here, Mr. Burns, as long as you wish. So they emptied out all of the other people except us, a busboy, a waiter, and a manager. And George talked till 1 o'clock in the morning. And then he got to what was his favorite story. He told stories about his days with Gracie and starting in show business. And he said, John, 
I'm going to tell you the greatest show business story I ever heard with the greatest woman I ever loved in my life outside of Gracie, and that's Lucille Ball. And briefly, this was the story. He said, you know, Lucy had a show on radio called I Love Lucy. Yes, certainly, we all know that. And her co-star was a really handsome, good-looking Irishman like the guy who moved to Poland, okay? And his name was Richard Denning. Tall, blondish, brown hair, blue eyes, six feet two, gorgeous. So it's in the middle 50s, and Lucy gets a phone call from the president of CBS and says, hey, Lucy, we want you to make a pilot for I Love Lucy because your show is number one on radio and we think it could be number one on television. And Lucy says, uh, uh, great. And uh, Lucy says, when can we start? And the guy says, right away. And she says, good, because, and, uh, and uh, then the, the guy says, I'm going to call Richard Denning now and tell him what we're doing. And she says, no, you're not. She said, what do you mean, no, I'm not? He's going to be your husband. No, he's not. My husband is going to be Desi. And the, the guy at CBS almost chokes. He said, you can't have a Cuban, a Hispanic, being your your husband, for God's sake, on American television, it doesn't exist. Everybody knows you on radio. And Lucy said, hey, listen, it's the 50s. Everybody in America knows that I'm married to the guy that sings Babaloo and plays the bongos, and his name is Desi Arnaz, and he's going to be my husband. And the guy says, no, no, he's not. And she said, well, I'm not doing the show. And she hangs up. Well, of course, the guy, they don't like to hear no. He calls back a half a dozen times and a half a dozen times. She says, it's, 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 it's Desi or else, and hangs up. So then finally the guy calls, and he says, you know, Lucy, I give up. But I know you're a consummate pro. I know Richard Denning is perfect, and America will love him. Your husband is an absolute and total mistake. But here's what I'll agree to. I agree to shooting a pilot with your husband, Desi, on the condition that if it comes out that you don't like it and we hate it, that we then do a pilot with Richard Denning. And Lucy said, I agree 100% to that. So they set up to do the pilot of I Love Lucy, George says. And he's got this wonderful growly voice and he's puffing his cigar slowly. So what's the first thing that Desi does? He said, hold it, give me two more cameras. So they set up three cameras to shoot a sitcom. He said, okay, now we need an audience. Now you have audiences, variety shows, but not for sitcoms. So does he know in his accent, he's, we need an audience. So they get an audience. And they shoot the pilot. And the pilot goes, great. And Lucy loves the pilot. The pilot goes back to CBS. The head of CBS hates the pilot. But while he's looking at it, the head of sales is also looking at it and sitting in with them is an interlooper who was the president 
of old gold cigarettes. So the president of CBS gets up and says, I got to make a phone call to Lucy because I got to tell her I don't like the show and leaves the office. He leaves the office. And the president of Old Gold buys 13 weeks of the show he just saw. And the sales guy signs the deal right then and there. So the owner, the head of programming, and the president is screaming in rage that they've all going to get fired and they made a mistake. But he swallows his pride and he calls Lucy and asks to admit that there's been a total mistake. He hated the show. Old Gold has accidentally bought it. And so they're going to shoot it. And Lucy says, no, you're not. And guess why Lucy said, no, you're not, even though Desi was going to be your husband. She says to him, you forgot to sign Desi to a contract. So if you're going to shoot that show, it's not yours. It's mine. And that's how Lucy got to own I Love Lucy and became the lady that bought the studios that became Desi Lou and gave us Star Trek, the smartest woman to ever be in show business. There you go. Are you applauding? Yep. Yes, we're. <laughs> you want to Lovely see? story. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that is America in a nutshell. America in an absolute nutshell. It's a Peter Principle rising to its greatest height. Let me tell you something. America is filled with absolute geniuses, unbelievable, undiscovered talents and intellect. Unfortunately, not one is in government, and I don't think ever will be. And so there you go. And you know what? We're way over an hour and a half. I had no intentions of saying one word of anything that I said tonight. Okay. So, oh, they say that we should practice social distancing with this COVID, we could practice political distancing, stay as far away from what's left of the Republicans as you can, and then the Democrats. And if you don't like what they're serving us next time, don't show up at the buffet, okay? Because it's food poisoning. Anyway, Thanks. I, would, I would love to come back in three or four months or whenever you can tolerate looking at this Superman shirt again, because I never got to tell you that story, which we'll wait till next time. And I'd love to tell you nothing but show business stories. You all got me sidetracked. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, and that you, you have to come back again, because I know sometimes you said, I don't, I don't give an advice. But then you really do in your own subtle way. So you lied. You give it. No, honest to God, don't. I, I have never, ever, ever given advice in my life. I don't even give it. To my, I don't even give it to my son. And I'm asked all the time. For example, what I would love you to Google. I hate to say this. It's kind of naughty, but on my 88th birthday, the 24th of April. I answered hundreds of questions. People wrote in and said, "What is the success to living a what is the secret to living a successful life?" Please Google, YouTube, John Barber, 
on Burning 88 today because there is something extremely funny and true at the top that I would like to repeat to you now, but I won't, but it's hilarious and it's true because nature does not give a hoot about your politics or your religion. Nature doesn't even give a hoot about you. Nature is only interested in the three Fs, fornicating, fighting, and feeding. And the fighting and feeding is to fornicate. They are only interested in the procreation of all forms of life and nothing else. And I have discovered the fountain of youth, but I will only reveal it to you in that YouTube because it's hilarious and it's true. Anyway, hopefully I'll see you in three or four months. I'm working on two shows now, one of my own and one I would love to do a theater piece. My greatest moment in a theater was Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain tonight. And I'm putting together one of those because I think this uh, separation stuff is gonna be over. And I have it a little over Mark Twain. He never had any video or film. So I've got a lot of that to show. Anyway, all of you, thank you, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. And thank Thanks, you, John. Okay, thank you. And we'll have you again, especially when you're ready with your theater play. Sure, please, okay. Thank you, and uh, thanks to all our audience. Please share this because, you know, if you keep listening to it, you'll really get the wisdom that John Barbour is showing to us. And I've seen that video, John, I love it. I listened to it, I think, five times. Oh my God, <laughs> thank you. And you know what? It is so wonderful to discover these hidden treasures like you people that nobody knows about. I'm sure they know about. You know, I had somebody introduce me and they said, John Barber is one of the most talented people in the world that nobody knows about. So, the Nicholas Tesla of the Kennedy assassination. That's why. Anyway, thank you again. Stay safe, all of you. And I hope I meet you all one day in person. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.